GM. I'm Dan Roberts. I'm Stacy Elliott. And this is GM from Decrypt. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. All right, GM, and welcome back on. Stacy. what's up? Hey, so we're going to talk about Coinbase today, and I am really excited about this because they've launched so many things recently. They've really been in the news a lot. They have made a ton of news, and I also think it's interesting. I mean, no one listening to this podcast needs any introduction on, on Coinbase and their size and their role in the industry, but tracking like what crypto Twitter thinks of Coinbase, and it has you know, gone in waves. Like, you know, for a while it was cool to kind of hate on Coinbase and make fun of them. But then I think that um, the Tornado Cash stuff happened among other things. And it it seems to me they're subtly, even though they're known as the company that plays nicely with regulators and and they do things in a legal compliant way, you know, they play ball, that's fine. And the DGENs can complain, but they've gotten a little spicier publicly, I think. And uh, the guy we have on today, Paul Grewal, is the chief legal officer. Considering this is the top lawyer at Coinbase, uh, even on his own Twitter, I think he's like uh, gotten a little more vocal and spicy with uh, tweeting about the stuff the SEC is doing that no one likes. Right. He can be pretty candid. And that's that's refreshing coming uh, from Coinbase, who are usually very buttoned up, very careful about what they want to say publicly. So I, I think it's, it's great. And I'm really excited to talk to him about everything. Um, he's got a really interesting background, too, because he was a U.S. magistrate judge in Silicon Valley. And then he went on to go work at Facebook for a bit. So like, he's very familiar with all the issues that the big tech companies have faced, you know, in the web two era. And then so now as we're moving into web three, I think he's just got such an interesting background to try to tackle this stuff. Yeah. And I always, I always love getting um, folks from, I don't want to say serious. It's not like, you know, you can just work in tech and that's serious, but like you said, former judge, I mean, you know, and then they go crypto how do you sort of make that type of decision, especially when it's an industry that, as we know, has a certain fraught reputation and image, especially post FTX and SBF? How has that affected things? Yeah, Coinbase is very, very image conscious. So, you know, what excites him? How does he think about this industry right now? And, you know, why can he feel confident in its future at a time when uh, in the U.S. all the regulatory news and indications are not good right now? Yeah, it's it's murky times, but you know, I think he's still got a lot of interesting stuff to say about Coinbase and how they're approaching things and you know, they're they're not giving up. They're they're still talking right. to regulators, at least that's what we've been hearing from them. So, you know, let's bring him on. Paul Grewal, Coinbase GM. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. No lack of things to talk about. Let's just dive right into the meat this way. I just got back from NFT Paris. And it was all the NFT DGENs. They descended upon Paris. Uh, I was pretty impressed. I mean, like 10,000 people in a huge building right by the Eiffel Tower. Brigitte Macron showed up, just by surprise, to walk around. And I felt that um, really spoke volumes. Like, 
it's hard for me to imagine Jill Biden uh, attending a crypto conference in the U.S. And what I want to ask you is, can the U.S. really be turned around in terms of the friendliness to crypto? Because right now, it looks very, very unfriendly. All of the luxury brands that were at this event in, in Paris, it was all about Europe. It all seems like it's happening in Europe. And you worry that crypto companies and projects are being turned off and pushed out of the U.S. Yeah, Dan, it, it is a worry. Um, I don't think we're going to be seeing the first lady at any crypto event here in the United States anytime soon, although we would certainly welcome her. I think it would be an absolute delight to have Dr. Biden join us um, at one or more of, our, uh, one or more of our, our discussions. I share the concern uh, that we are losing the script a bit here in the United States when it comes to crypto and crypto regulation. And I think you are right to call out that in other parts of the world, even in other jurisdictions that we consider to be friends and allies, there is a very different kind of conversation happening. The question is not, should there be um, a, a thriving crypto economy, but how do we get to that economy in a way that protects consumers, protects investors, promotes innovation, and um, allows experimentation and creativity? And so when I see events like the one you describe in Paris, a small little part of my heart quite candidly dies because we could be that way here in the United States. We could get to that same place or point of balance if we only opened our minds and our hearts to the possibility. I wanted to ask about Coinbase's approach or, or strategy, how you guys see all of this with regulators here in the U.S. Because what we've been increasingly hearing is that the companies who are, quote unquote, playing nice or, or trying to engage and be proactive with regulators are still on the receiving end of enforcement actions and Wells notices like Coinbase has been. So how do you come up with a new plan? Like, what's your new approach? Like, what, what do you do going forward? A new approach and a new plan is important, but I think it's also important to hold true to old values and principles. Uh, you know, for Coinbase, that has been uh, investing since day one in trust and in safety and security for our customers. And a huge part of trust and safety and security, of course, is productive, proactive engagement with the regulators so that whether it's New York, whether it's the SEC or whether it's anybody else, they can understand what we're doing, why we believe we are compliant, the challenges we are seeing on our platforms and how that could and should inform their thinking about the right rules and the right balance to strike. Those, those principles, those values for Coinbase aren't going to change. What, what certainly I think has changed uh, in recent months and perhaps even recent weeks is that we've seen from um, certain regulators, including uh, the, the SEC, a continued reliance upon a regulation by enforcement approach. And you know, as we have seen public reporting on subpoenas being issued to other parties or public announcements about consent orders and settlements, um, there's no question we are seeing a doubling down, maybe even a tripling down on this regulation by enforcement approach. We continue to believe at Coinbase that more public, a more transparent process that is grounded in rulemaking, that is grounded in the rule of law is a better way to go. And we're going to we're going to continue to advocate for that. That's not something we plan to change. Yeah, Paul, when you say there's been a doubling down or tripling down, I'm glad you referenced that because in some ways things haven't changed. Like, you know, for years we've heard about people in the industry say regulation by enforcement. And we've also seen people, one, one of the, um, you know, repeated phrases that I'm sort of tired of is, is people say, we don't have a clear roadmap. We need a clear roadmap. And it's like, it seems to me that it's gotten a little worse and harsher visibly and that there is a roadmap and it's just that we don't like the roadmap. What I want to ask you when you talk about kind of trying to keep the phone lines open with regulators, you're keeping open conversation. To what extent do you think that the recent doubling down is a direct response to the FTX stuff? And how much did Sam Bankman-Fried kind of set everyone back? 
there's no question that FTX um, set the entire industry back and frankly, the whole conversation around crypto. And to a large extent, it's understandable. What we saw with FTX was nothing short of flat out fraud. That should give everyone, including regulators, concern and perhaps even pause um, on the right way um, to make sure that tragedies like that never happen again. At the same time, I, I think it's also important that we not allow that unfortunate event, which of course was just one of a number of, of, of unfortunate events last year, to shape how we're thinking about the future when countries like France, as we were just talking about, and many others are taking a very different approach to, to regulation. I, I will say that um, I think the industry for a while, perhaps even for a long time, deserved the criticism that it was complaining about rules or the possibility of rules without really offering solutions. It's one of the reasons, Dan, why last July, Coinbase decided to file a formal petition for rulemaking in which we listed something like 40 or 50 or more specific questions and issues that needed to be resolved as part of rulemaking. Um, and we, we still think that is the right way to go. Uh, it's still not too late. The train has not completely left the station. It is concerning to see that the response to that proactive engagement, not just by Coinbase, but by a number of others in crypto, has been to double down or triple down, as we were just discussing, on subpoenas, on Wells notices, and on enforcement actions. Yeah. And then as a, a follow-up, you know, I asked about Sam, the other kind of individual elephant in the room is Gary Gensler. And, you know, people say, well, the SEC just enforces the law and the way to change things is to go to the politicians who make the laws. You know, it does seem to me that for a while there, people were kind of blaming Gary and it was kind of like, well, it isn't just this one guy. And now lately, even I'm kind of converted where a lot of it is coming from this one guy, you know, the rhetoric. And basically, if Gary and the current SEC think that everything other than Bitcoin is a security, I don't know what projects that want to have tokens and deal in tokens are going to do in the U.S. The chair has a very tough task before him. I think it's important, even for those of us who have not been afraid to share our concerns and even criticisms, to acknowledge that it's a tough job. It's an important job. The cost of screwing this up is extraordinarily high you know, in, in any direction. All of that said, I do think that the conversations have not been as open um, as they could be and should be when it comes to figuring out what digital assets qualify as securities, figuring out what are the right um, standards and, and rules that ought to be adopted for issuer disclosures. You know, we could go down a long list of questions, uh, many of which we raised in that petition that I mentioned a moment ago. But, but the point is the same. You know, no one has a monopoly on wisdom in crypto. The right way to get to the right result is to have a more open conversation. You know, as, far the, as for the most basic question, I think, of all when it comes to securities regulation in crypto, what is, in fact, a security? The fact, Dan and Stacey, that the three of us sitting here on this podcast could not articulate what that standard is and what distinguishes Bitcoin from everything else points to a very serious problem that needs to be addressed. I wanted to follow up on something that at this point happened quite a while ago, to be honest, but this was the SEC saying that nine of the tokens that Coinbase lists on an exchange are securities. Um, I, I checked right before we got on, but all of the ones that were named in that are still listed. How does stuff like that shake out? I mean, it, the SEC was pretty clear. It listed the, the tokens that it thought were securities. And then you guys decided to keep them listed. So give us a little insight into how that decision making gets made. You know, what what else happens on the back of that? Well, just to be super clear, a couple of those assets were not listed and, and, and so forth. So um, it's not exactly right that all nine are currently listed on Coinbase in any event. To get to the 
broader question you're, you're raising, Stacey, about how we go about figuring out what to list, when to delist, and so on and so forth. Coinbase runs a very extensive asset uh, listing review process that, uh, that focuses, yes, on the question of whether or not the asset is a security or not, but also on a whole host of other questions, both legal and non-legal. We have an entirely separate compliance review, for example, and a security with a small s review mm-hmm. in terms of making sure that um, you know the assets that are being considered would not be vulnerable to rug pulls or other type of, of fraud. For Coinbase, we start from the premise that um, because we are not a national securities exchange, um, we do not list securities. And so an important premise for the entire review process that we undertake is, can we apply the law that's been given to us by the Congress in 1933 and 34 and the Supreme Court in the years that have followed and figure out whether or not a particular asset runs the risk of being confirmed as a, as a security um, uh, at some point in a legal process? This is quite honestly and candidly as much art as science. Mm-hmm. We are looking to precedents from the courts in the first instance, but also to um, statements and guidance provided by the SEC and elsewhere to understand sort of what the current thinking is of the commission and what others may think courts would would decide if if, if court of cases made their way to court. I'll just I'll pause though to say that if you just think for a minute about what I've just described and nothing more, I think you'd have to ask, like, is this the best we can do, right? Like, is it really a smart way to regulate crypto, put not just exchanges like Coinbase, but issuers and project developers all over the country and all over the world to the task of pulling threads out of speeches that are made by one or more commissioners, looking to you know media interviews that one or more commissioners or other SEC officials has given that suggests that all assets are securities so long as there's a person or persons in the middle between the project and the, and, the, and the purchaser. That's a pretty broken process. I think we could all agree on at least that much. From my perspective, it doesn't have to be that way because we can rely upon the legal process set out by Congress, notice and comment rulemaking, public input, and ultimately a decision that balances interests. There's a better way to do this. Does that mean Coinbase's listing process or the due diligence that gets done before something gets listed on the exchange, did that change off the back of that uh, notice from the SEC? We regularly review our assets on a going forward basis as we learn more information. And there may be circumstances where new information um, suggests that an asset is no longer appropriate for listing on Coinbase. That may be because of a securities issue in certain instances. It may be because of other 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 issues regarding um, liquidity or, or new security vulnerabilities that we've identified. So there could be any number of reasons why an asset comes off of our exchange and is delisted, but mm-hmm. it's certainly a process that we can regularly revisit because cer- facts and circumstances change. And it's sure. important that we uh, react to that. Yeah. One more question on that news event. I remember, Paul, that you did a blog post at the time. I did. And you said, well, they're not securities because we don't list securities. And I sort of appreciated that and respected it, but I also had a laugh because I thought, well, that's not going to be very convincing if they're saying we think they're securities. You know, you can't just kind of rest on saying, but they're not because we don't list securities. You know, it, it sort of felt like it was like, trust us. I mean, behind the scenes, and I know there's sort of things you can't share, but I, I'm also asking in general about the SEC keeps saying to crypto projects like, you know, give us a call. We have an open door, knock on our door. And what what many founders have tweeted is like, no, you don't. And we don't know who to call. We can't reach you guys. I mean, when you post a response like that, do you hear from someone? Are you in touch with staffers at the agency saying, nice try? Or are they actually saying, you know, we hear you? 
to be clear, we're, we're regularly in conversation with staff, not just at the SEC, but at a number of other agencies over a whole host of issues. When you run a complicated business like ours, it's important that those lines of communication always remain open, even if mm. you're in strong disagreement in certain areas. I think we said a little bit more than just we don't list assets. That might have been the headline. But the, the fact of the matter is we do undertake a, an exhaustive review that looks to the Howey factors in the first instance, looks to guidance and precedent, applies it to all of the submissions that are made by the um, asset issuers. You know, we have an, we have an asset hub um, that um, solicits um, lots and lots of detail from, from those who are proposing to have a token listed on Coinbase. And then we apply the law to those facts and circumstances and, and reach the conclusions that we do. You know, one thing I think that's super important, Dan, to, to, keep, to bear in mind, and I know you and Stacey both understand this, Coinbase, for whatever number of assets that we currently list, rejects many, many more, something like 90 plus percent of, of the uh, assets that are proposed for submission for a whole host of reasons, some because they're securities, others for other reasons. The notion, I think, that has taken root in some of the public conversation that we just take whatever assets are thrown our way and put them up on the exchange is just belied by the process that we did articulate in that blog post. And you know, in response to that, um, you are right. We have seen some you know, some discussion that companies like Coinbase just need to come in and register, maybe just go to the website, download the form, and all will be well. I think it's fair to say that anyone who uh, spent any uh, amount of time in this area and is serious in any way about these issues, registration of a federal security is far more complex, nuanced, many cases fraught than simply going to a website and downloading a form. You mentioned the Howey test, which Stacey and I are well versed in. I know. In you, got, I, you, got, you, you, guys, you guys could teach the law school class as well as anyone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In some ways, I feel um, like you know I'm, I'm a faux lawyer just from how deep I've gone in the Howey test stuff. <laughs> and, and what I say to people sometimes, no one wants to hear it, but I sort of understand the Howey test, or, or I very much understand using that as a definition of a security. Now, that's not the same as saying that I agree all these tokens should fall under the definition. But you know, the idea that people reject the Howey test because it's outdated, like, sure, it's many decades old. But to me, it kind of works. You know, If it's being offered as shares in something that the labor of someone else is going to make the price go up, and if you're marketing it based on the price will go up, and people are buying it hoping for the profit, and it's something that they can't control, it's profit thanks to the work of others, Okay, it's a security. I mean, what do you make of the Howey test and, and whether it stands up these days? I'm a former judge, so I love legal precedents, even, even if they are decades old. And in some cases, I love them even more if they are centuries old. So I have no problem with Howey or any other precedent simply because of its age. I do think, though, that sometimes uh, older precedents that do not in any way reflect modern realities can often be misused or even in some cases abused. When it comes to Howey and when it comes to the question of what is or is not a security under the securities laws of the United States, I think it's very, very helpful to always bear in mind why we have securities laws in the first place and what the purpose of the law is. To my mind, the most important purpose of the federal securities laws is that, it, is that they seek to address what is often the case when people invest their money in certain ventures, which is the information asymmetry between the people responsible for making that venture a success and the people supplying the investment. And that's why in certain cases, I absolutely agree um, with the chair and with the commission as a whole that digital assets can and often do qualify as securities. Um, that's one of the reasons why we undertake this whole process to, to make sure that we screen those out uh, from Coinbase. The main point is that 
the Howey test itself is not the problem per se, although I think, it, as I said earlier, it can give rise to a lot of confusion or even, even misuse. The problem is that when it comes to crypto, when it, when it comes to the operation of a blockchain-based technology that underlies uh, most digital assets, there is often, I think, a confusion about the role of the promoter, uh, a confusion about what is driving any returns that might accrue to the holder of tokens, and a confusion about fundamentally how these assets work and what real utility they bring to the networks. When it comes to networks that are uh, based on a proof of stake consensus mechanism, there's a very important role that these tokens play, which is to make sure that the networks are secure, that the, that the transactions that are confirmed on the network are accurate. And so there's just, a, I think, a, a lot of subtlety and nuance that sometimes gets lost. Maybe that's predictable when you're applying a, a 1940-something case involving orange groves to modern digital technologies. But I think it's all the more important in those circumstances not to gloss over important nuance and detail uh, simply for the sake of a soundbite. Thank you for that, because we we wind up talking about the Howey test with lots of people who come on. It, it's just, it's you know, it, it always comes up. It's relevant to almost every episode we do. Um, but I, I want to ask about Tornado Cash, which at this point feels like another blast from the past. But I remember when this was all happening, um, one of the devs who worked on it got arrested, and this was big in the news. And then eventually Coinbase took what seemed like a very strong stance um, against Tornado Cash having been added to the sanctions list um, and committed to backing this lawsuit. Tell us a little bit about how you guys made that decision. I'd love to do that. And, and I have to observe as well, Stacey, that like only in crypto would like the SEC's case against Mr. Wahi or Tornado Cash seem like ancient history in February of yes, 2023. I know. <laughs> that's <laughs> so where much we has are. happened since then. Yeah. That's where we are. You're absolutely right. What's happening with Tornado Cash, and I say happening purposely because that situation is not in the distant past. Right. It's ongoing. It's ongoing. Real people continue to be hurt in real ways by by the designations by the Treasury Department. We thought it was important when when the when when that sanctions designation was made, before we did anything else, to pause and and, and to really study what was going on, what was what what appeared to be motivating the concern about the protocol, and then to reflect on even on the fact that even if we as Coinbase were not directly impacted as a company, did we have a unique responsibility to support efforts to address you know, the damage that we feared might be done? And after we went through that entire sort of mental exercise, we quickly figured out a couple things. One, that this was a serious threat to the privacy of Americans looking to do nothing more than make payments, um, support charitable efforts, and to do all sorts of things that they just might not want to share out in the open. And that doesn't make them criminals. It doesn't make them money launderers. It just makes them people who value their privacy, which at least until very recently seemed to be a common American value. So, so we felt the principle was extremely important. We also thought and, and ultimately concluded that the manner in which the designations were made were counter to the statute that authorized Treasury and OFAC to issue sanctions. And you know, this is a theme I think that um, I would never have guessed would be so important in my day-to-day job here at Coinbase, because when I started the company three years ago, I obviously knew about all of our legal challenges and the, the challenges to come um, in, in crypto. What I didn't fully appreciate was Brian Armstrong's deep-rooted commitment to the rule of law, even when it didn't directly impact him, him mm-hmm. or the company. Now, in the case of Tornado Cash, it actually did impact Brian directly, because as you may recall from some of the public reporting on this, he was dusted 
with a tiny bit of the assets subject to the protocol uh, mm-hmm. in the aftermath of the sanctions. Even though Coinbase itself was not directly impacted, um, we knew that we could play a unique role in um, supporting our, our employees who were very much impacted, others um, who were known to those employees and, and in the community more generally. And we thought we had a responsibility to do that. And so even though um, many companies, I think, would have shied away from that, maybe even um, many companies in our industry, we felt like we had no choice. And so we decided to act. I, I remember that that letter kind of sent ripples throughout the, the industry when you guys notified everyone that you were going to be involved. Yeah. So what, what's, what's the current status there? You yeah. said this is ongoing. So it uh, is ongoing. So the, the case, the case uh, remains pending in district court and mm-hmm. in true fashion for, for, for federal litigation in this country, um, it will take some time um, to resolve itself. I think the crypto community is starting to fully appreciate how slow litigation can, can feel yeah. um, given the volume of litigation that is now pending in the federal courts involving crypto. But the fundamental issue in the case remains live, which is, does the United States government have the right to designate not a person or an organization responsible for terror or for financing of, of, of terrorist operations or money laundering, anything like that? Can they sanction a protocol and, and effectively make any American relying upon that protocol to simply keep their transactions outside of the public eye? Can they brand those Americans effectively criminals? Um, that's a core issue for crypto, but also I hope for, for many Americans. And so we're going to continue to support those uh, brave plaintiffs who, who decided to step forward uh, for as long as it takes. We'll be right back after this. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Yeah, we had the chance to speak to... Ed Snowden back in the fall about Tornado Cash, some of the same comments. You guys definitely see eye to eye. And in some ways, I think the general public still hasn't even fully heard about or understood the implications of um, this, I guess, case. It, it is yeah. just kind of crazy to me. One more question on that. And I like the way Stacy put it. I mean, when you guys kind of threw your weight behind that, I think it was definitely noticed. And I just thought it was a good chance to ask you. I mean, the way that Coinbase is seen and situated in the crypto industry, you know, when you guys kind of put your voice out about something or put out a letter or a statement, it definitely, people notice it, people see it, it carries weight. At the same time, there's still an interesting push and pull to me where there's the kind of true degens who want everything decentralized. And they would say, you know, don't use a Coinbase, you know, use Uniswap and use a DEX. And I'm just curious your take on like, you know, where you think Coinbase's reputation and image sits right now with that sphere of crypto. Well, look, um, it's not lost on on anyone at Coinbase, certainly me, that um, there's there's a range of opinions that may change day to day about what Coinbase is doing and um, our role in helping to you know, bring about a true crypto economy. Totally get that. And, and candidly, some of the criticisms are fair. Maybe even many of them are fair from time to time. The, the reality is that Coinbase is, is, is happy to disrupt itself. And I think Brian 
and and others in, in leadership of this company have been quite public in um, voicing their support and then putting the resources behind the idea that you know the long-term vision and future for crypto is 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 decentralization and so um, even if that means ultimately over time that you know our current model and our current role in the crypto economy may have to change we're comfortable with that because we're trying to do something much bigger here than just run a centralized exchange for as long as we can um, you know I think that uh, when when it comes to you know not just saying the right things and voicing the right sentiments, but doing things that matter to bring about that decentralized future. I think we're doing, we're doing pretty well here. Um, we're not perfect by any stretch, but you know, if you look, for example, at last week's announcements about base, there was a very strong positive reaction to the idea that, you know, Coinbase would be, would be helping to build a, an L2 and, and really a platform for, for decentralized applications and a bridge to you know, many different other protocols. That's in, exciting and hopefully ultimately inspiring. So, you know, we've always got work to do, I think, to, to earn our street cred. You know, at the end of the day, like, you know, we're always going to follow the law and we're always going to do what's right by our, our customers and our users, first and foremost. But I think we're making good progress in that direction, even if we can't please all the people all the time. I'm so glad you brought up base because this is where I wanted to go next. Um, I, I wound up writing one. I think we probably wrote more than one at this point. One of our stories, at least about base um, last week. I am so curious about what kind of legal questions there had to have been around this. You know, this is a publicly traded company launching an L2 that's meant to be open source and decentralized. So what what kind of considerations are there around this and, and how regulators or law, like anyone might might look to Coinbase and say, well, you're responsible for this because you launched it. One of the things I love about my job, Stacey, is that um, no two days are the same. And so, sure. <laughs> you know, launch day for base was certainly a unique experience for me in my career. And I'm, I'm fortunate that I have the help of many, many talented people on the legal team to help work through the issues that might arise. I think that um, for as excited as we all are about base, it's still obviously very early days. Testnet is just up. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're hoping to go main in, in a quarter or two. It's our full expectation that over time you're going to see true decentralization um, emerge on on the network, even if we happen to have been responsible for kicking things off. The fact that we are not issuing our own token, I think, um, significantly alters you know the legal analysis and the, the complexity of the legal issues that we resolve. And at the same time, the number one thing that matters for us and and for this project isn't you know just what the lawyers think, although we, you know that's obviously very very important. It's are we building tools for developers and technologies for for others are exciting and that allow them to do things that they can't otherwise do or to do it more easily. You know, so getting the tech right and, and product market fit right are, are a heck of a lot more important uh, in the long run than, than, the, than the legal analysis. We're confident in our legal analysis. We believe we are on very solid ground when it comes to base. But it was a good reminder for, for me and for my team that as, as much as we're in the, in the trench fighting you know, day in and day out over, over the state of the law and regulations and all that, that there's a heck of a lot of innovation that is happening and needs to happen mm-hmm. elsewhere in the company for all this to matter. I wanted to ask, too, about um, the news that we got that Binance USD was no longer going to be on Coinbase. Um, that was pretty big news. And I I guess I can say of the industry that almost everyone seems like their odds are kind of like with a head to head, like with Binance. And so now that FCX is out of the picture now, it's like, ah, Coinbase and Binance. And some of this played out a little bit with the, the USDC stuff that we saw last year with them auto converting. But a lot has happened since then. Now Binance USD is no longer on Coinbase. Talk us through the legal considerations there and how you guys arrived at that. 
there is, I think, a much broader uh, conversation happening right now around stable coins, including USD-backed stable coins. And, and BUSD, I, I think, has only added to that conversation. Look, for, for Coinbase, um, you know, we made a determination to suspend trading uh, based on really uh, nothing more, nothing less than our own internal monitoring review process. I, I mentioned earlier that um, Coinbase regularly reviews assets mm -hmm. that is listed. And when we determine that those assets no longer meet our, our standards and criteria, we're going to we're going to take steps to keep our customers uh, safe and secure and, and make sure that um, they are they are always protected. For Coinbase, it was really nothing more complicated than that. I do think the broader question, though, of what USD-backed stablecoin assets could qualify either as securities on the one hand or be subject um, you know, to, to bit licenses and other restrictions that states may impose is a super important one. And I, I think it's so important that um, if, if Congress did nothing else than to pass reasonable legislation on stablecoins, I think it would do a great service uh, in the short term. And, and even if they can't pass more comprehensive legislation that all of us would like, or at least most of us would like. In short, the, the BUSD um, uh, situation um, highlighted um, mm -hmm. some, some particular issues with respect to um, due diligence and, and, and other concerns that the DFS and, and SEC have raised. But, but they're part of a much bigger question that we think needs to be resolved, given how important stablecoins have become as a very key use case in crypto. At least one of the questions I think that is being considered in all of this with BUSD is whether a stablecoin could even be considered a security. I mean, if it's working as it's supposed to, it's not going to go up in price um, as, as anyone who's, you know, just kind of basically one on one familiar with stablecoins and crypto will know. I'm sorry, but I'm going to kind of ask you to pick sides here. Do you think a stablecoin could ever be a security? In concept, one could, could one could create a stablecoin that might qualify as a security particularly if you're talking about algorithmic stable coins where there's sure. the potential for a float in value and, and f real efforts being made by central actors to, to make that happen and mm -hmm. all of the other Howie factors that the three of us and many others now uh, can recite in our sleep. I think when it comes to USD-backed stable coins like BUSD um, and, and others, the case just is it's really, really hard. I mean, the fact mm -hmm. of the matter is, as you point out, these coins are redeemable you know, one to one for a buck. That's just uh, the reality. I think there are non-securities issues that um, could and should be the subject of reasonable legislation or regulation. For example, mm -hmm. we think it's entirely appropriate that the reserves backing these types of USD stablecoins be fully disclosed, transparent, um, supported by you know, audits and, and those sorts of things. So, so you know, there's room for sensible regulation here. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting. But I think you know, when it comes to stable coins like BUSD, they're very good examples of a, of a broader concern or problem that I see in crypto, which is using the wrong tool to address a perceived issue. To the extent that we look to the securities laws to address issues of consumer protection or the securities laws to address issues of um, you know, disclosing uh, adequate reserves or money transmission or any, whatever the case may be, mm -hmm. we're, we're effectively um, you know, looking, looking to apply the wrong tool to the situation. And I think we ultimately end up with the wrong result. What is Crypto 435? Super excited about Crypto 435. I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. For too long, uh, I think it's fair to say um, the conversation uh, around crypto has ignored what a lot of Americans, maybe even most Americans, actually think about our financial system. And so Coinbase decided and announced today to launch Crypto 435, which is an initiative to grow the crypto advocacy community and give 
individuals in, interested in getting involved in that community with tools and resources to help shape policy here in the U.S. Just to throw a couple of facts your way to, to, to illustrate how important this issue is, we did extensive polling and we confirmed that something like 20% of Americans now have owned crypto um, are calling for regulations to guide the future of the industry. I mean, that's a remarkable statistic if you think about how young our industry is. And 60% or more uh, of, of Americans feel that the, the traditional sy uh, financial system needs fixing and, and, and believe that crypto can be part of that. So there's a strong impetus and strong energy in crypto to want to do something um, uh, to make sure that politicians and others understand how uh, people feel. Oftentimes, there's just a lack of understanding or education about the right way to go about that. And so we're launching Crypto 435, 435 being a reference to the 435 congressional districts in the United mm -hmm. States, to give people tools to communicate with their with their representatives and influence policymakers in an appropriate way. And, and we think we, we can make a meaningful contribution in doing that. It's not going to you know, solve every problem uh, regarding public policy and making sure that Americans' voices are heard, but we think it can make a meaningful contribution to the debate. And so uh, we're, we're committed to providing the resources to, 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 to see that through. What do you think, Paul, it's going to take? And maybe this is something that helps lead to it. Maybe it's the lobbying by everyone collectively. But, you know, as I alluded to earlier, people love to say the SEC just enforces, you know, you have to get to the lawmakers. Uh, but for the the waters in the U.S. to change, what's the one thing that it's going to require? Is it a new law that specifically protects this stuff or is it changing the existing laws? You know, what do we need to have happen so that everyone can agree, OK, we can go back to the U.S.? You know, there are companies that completely left or they say we do business everywhere but the U.S.? Well, I'm always reluctant to offer a single silver bullet um, that will solve every problem uh, in crypto <laughs> or anywhere else. But quite honestly, um, short of comprehensive legislation, which I would agree, Dan, is not likely uh, in this congressional session, the SEC can issue reasonable rules. And that's one of the reasons why we filed our petition back in July and commented on it again in, in the months since. We think that there are sensible standards that could be adopted um, that address so many of these issues like issuer disclosures or the definition of a security or, or the appropriate um, standards for, for, for custody that are really, really important in crypto. And you know, I, I mentioned custody. I think it's important to give the SEC credit where credit is due. Um, recently, the SEC um, issued a proposed rulemaking regarding qualified custodians. It's an issue that matters a lot um, when, it, when it comes to crypto. And even if certain parts of the, of the proposed rule were smart and sound from our perspective and others were less so. The fact the SEC used a notice and comment rulemaking process, they understand that there's a way to go about this to, to make lasting and enduring reforms. And so that, that, that gave us some small cause for hope. If the SEC did nothing more than issue a proposed set of rules around these questions and invited the public in, and, did, and not just the Coinbase's of the world, but others who are more critical, we think we'd get to a better result. And we know this because we see that happening in countries all over the world outside the United States. I want to, to ask about, frankly, your resume a little bit. Like you worked at Facebook for a couple of years um, before it was meta, <laughs> um, just did. to give people kind of like a time reference. Um, what is so interesting to you about the laws that applies to technology and, and now crypto? To understand you know, my, my interest in the law and technology, I think you have to, you have to go one step further back in my career before Facebook, which was 
my time uh, as a United States magistrate judge in the federal district court in Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. I mentioned that I'd served as a judge and, and, and had the pleasure of, of serving as a judge for something like five and a half years. During that time, sitting in the federal courthouse in the middle of Silicon Valley, you know, I was privileged to preside over a number of disputes involving the biggest companies in tech and the most influential developers of tech anywhere, companies like Apple and Samsung, Oracle and Google, and many others. And you know that really, I think, inspired me that law can be an important force for good when it comes to striking the right balance um, with technology, not just promoting its you know, unbridled growth uh, and, and acceleration, but making sure that we get sensible rules that keep people safe and, and address what are often you know, legitimate concerns about what its impact is on society. So I came to Facebook and then ultimately to, to Coinbase because I, I felt like I could do more in, in, in the role of principal and an advisor than I could as a judge. And um, while that hasn't always uh, been easy, um, it's endlessly interesting. Just as the, the privacy fights and election interference issues that Facebook found itself were endlessly interesting, I think crypto presents no shortage of really, really fun, interesting, complex topics for lawyers like me. And I just feel privileged I get to play some small part in, in getting, to, getting to resolution on at least some of them. Yeah, in the past, Paul, I, I covered very closely the rise of uh, daily fantasy sports, DFS, and then yeah. sports betting. And I often back then compared them, and lately they look even more similar in terms of the the journeys toward, I don't want to say legalization because it's not like crypto is illegal, but you know the regulatory battles they've fought yes. really mirror each other. Um, I'm glad Stacey asked about your you know your personal background because. You know, we want to have a little fun here. We've been going so hard on the, the law. You mean talking about the Howie test for 30 minutes isn't fun? I don't know what you guys are talking about. You know, and yeah, and, and so I thought it might be fun. As you mentioned, you know, you're a former judge. So, you know, you've, you know some people, obviously, who are kind of serious folks. And, and there, are, there are quite a lot of people still, as we know, who just, they look at all this stuff. They look at our crypto world and they just say, I don't get it. Or I'm not interested. Or it just, it all seems kind of scammy to me. Someone just... You know, I always have the same conversation with my parents over and over because they say, but someone just made it up. I say, yes, but, you know, value is whatever a large enough group agrees and people say it has value. What do you, I guess I'd ask a two-part question. What within crypto interests and excites you most and kind of gets you going? And then what do you say, I'm sure you have friends who, who are, uh, to skeptics? Well, the thing that gets me most excited within crypto is its potential to solve some of the basic and fundamental problems with our legacy financial system. The fact is that we are still in very early days when it comes to what crypto can do to provide real access to financial products and services uh, for people who, who traditionally have been excluded from, from our system. I think we're still in very early days in terms of providing a level playing field for people who want to have um, the opportunity to save and invest and participate in the economy as opposed to simply just being an object of that economy. So that is what brought me to Coinbase and um, what I'm still excited about nearly three years after I joined the company as much as, as, as I was on day one. When, when, when I hear the concerns and critiques that you referenced, Dan, not just from um, you know, professional colleagues or other judges, but family members and friends, I, I realize that um, you know, we are still in the very early days of winning over the hearts and minds of the broader community and, and, and broader American society. It's okay to be skeptical. I mean, we, in fact, it's important for us to be skeptical and not just you know, take hook, line, and sinker what anyone in crypto or any other industry um, offers without raising important questions. You know, I think, I, I think a lot, Dan, about history, and I think a lot about technology and history. 
you know, if you look at every major fundamental shift um, in the United States we've had over the last hundred or 200 years, whether it was, you know, uh, the railroads, uh, the telegraph, the telephone, more recently, the internet, there's always been skepticism, right? There's always been sort of hostility in some cases um, to, to, to new ways of doing things. And, and, and maybe even less than just even, even only slightly less than that, a, a basic question of why do I even need this stuff, right? Like, why do I need to take a railroad when my horse is perfectly fine? Right? Like why, why do I need email when I can just write a letter and put a stamp on it and, and get a response back in two or three days? So, you know, I've been around long enough to know that there's going to be skepticism. There's going to be questions about why this stuff is even worth the trouble, when, when I see those same questions being asked in crypto, I, I'm not, I'm not um, discouraged by that. I just think it's important for all of us in crypto to be patient with those who are less familiar with it, to also be humble that when people ask these questions, they're not doing so just out of malice. They're, they're actually doing us a favor by pushing us to ask, why does this stuff actually need to exist? And when it comes to crypto, if for no other reason, it's impact, potential impact on the financial system, it needs to exist. It, it's part of the solution uh, to some problems that are plaguing our country for a very long time. Thank you so much for coming on with us. I mean, Dan and I really like to parse legal and policy questions around Every crypto time. on this podcast all the time. So perfect person to do that with. Thank you for having me. I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation. And, and go Browns, right, Paul? And yeah. go Browns. And, and, and Cavaliers and Guardians, too, for those, for those of you in oh, Northeast man. Ohio. That's our show today. Thanks for listening. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to GM wherever you podcast. And if you head to our website, decrypt.co, you can find the full videos of every interview with every guest. Finally, we have a telegram room for our loyal GM listeners. The address is t.me slash GM podcast. If you pop in there, you can get direct access to the co-hosts. You can suggest future guests, submit comments, and ask questions. It's t.me slash GM podcast. GM. GM.